um, I'm not about you, but some of the things I've loved about this series is learning about the history of Israel at this time. Like, I kind of love history, so I've loved that. I've loved about God's unending faithfulness to his people, despite their unfaithfulness. The rich portraits of Christ that we've seen painted through this prophetic imagery. And I just feel like it's so rich. And this all happened so much ahead of when Christ returned. And this portion we're looking at today, Isaiah 61, is believed to be written 550 years before Christ. Um, so we're going to take a little trip back in time on this one. So Isaiah 61, let's kick it off. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. And I just want to pause there for a moment. God's anointing will rest upon this Messiah. And what does that mean? You know, when we look back in the Old Testament, anointing, they would literally sometimes pour oil over people's heads or they would smear and rub them with oil. Why did they do that? It was to consecrate or set the person aside for God's holy, divine, specific purposes. Kings, priests, prophets would get this anointing outwardly with oil, but it symbolized so much more spiritually. It was a profound spiritual reality that God's presence was on them, that his favor was upon them. We see this in the life of David. He was anointed by Samuel before he became king, and there was this consecration or this purpose of God upon his life. We see it also in the life of um, Moses when he was told to anoint Aaron and all his sons as priests unto the Lord. And I love it, when they put out an offering, God's holy fire would consume that offering. There's so many other examples in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus Christ reveals himself as our anointed king, as our anointed priest and prophet. He is God's holy chosen son, the Messiah. And this word Messiah, it actually translates or it means anointed one. So, if that Messiah suddenly showed up in the room, in the flesh, what would you do? How does Jesus embody this prophecy? Because it wasn't necessarily how the Jewish people were expecting it to show up or unfold. And let's have a little look at, first of all, this passage in Isaiah, what it says and how Jesus embodies it. So first of all, he has come to proclaim good news to the poor. To the poor. This word can also mean humble, afflicted, meek. And we read in Matthew 9.13, Jesus came not to call the righteous, but those who were afflicted. And some of the righteous were a little bit upset by this. <laughs> but are we all not afflicted by sin in this world, in our human experience? He came with good news for the afflicted. He came with good news for the sinner. His message was one of forgiveness and hope and love and restoration with God the Father. He teaches us what the kingdom of God is like. His message, Jesus, was surely one of good news. Then, as we go on, he came to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus takes the broken pieces of our hearts and he puts it back together. And I can so personally testify of that in my own life. I've experienced God do that in most remarkable ways. Just taking the fragmented parts of my heart and mend them and heal them and restore them. You know, the reckoning of Christ's sacrifice and love is so powerful, so powerful it can heal the deepest parts of our souls. I truly believe that I've experienced that. His love, 
is true and real and deeply powerful. The scriptures say in Ezekiel, he'll take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Surely Christ does this. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the captives. The paradox of sin is that it brings you into bondage under the guise of giving you freedom. Right. But it's not true freedom. It's really not. In Christ we are no longer slaves to sin, but made fully alive. Fully alive. And I just want to touch on this quickly, but some scholars believe that this particular portion of the verse refers as well to the ministry of Christ, Christ to those who died before he even came. And this is really cool. Paul tells us that he ascended, that he who ascended, sorry, he went up, let me get my actions right, he who ascended <laughs> is the same one who first of all descended into the lower parts of the earth. And when he ascended, he led the captives in his train. He led the captives from captivity. From what? Captivity to sin. You know, and when he ascended, as the captives trailed behind him, you see, even in the time before Abraham, there were those men of the Old Testament who were accounted righteous because of their faith in God. Because of their faith in God. And they were waiting on the promises of God to be revealed. But it didn't come in their lifetime. Yet Hebrews 11 tells us, they all died in faith, not having received the promise, but seeing it far off, they embraced it. So we're told by Peter that when Jesus descended into hell, he tells us his purpose of going there was to preach to the souls that were in prison, that were at one time disobedient, but believed and trusted in God. So there's this beautiful picture in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, that Christ rose, and this is a pretty crazy picture, I don't know if you've read this before, but when Christ rose from the dead, it said that many of the graves of the saints broke open and they were seen walking the streets of Jerusalem after his resurrection from the dead. How insane is that? Imagine being there for that moment. You see, death is a prison that cannot all hold those who've received the gift of eternal life that Christ offers us. We are no longer captives to death. And you know, I have come face to face with the experience of death, with a moment in my life where I, I could die, I could have lived. And I can honestly tell you that in that moment, I had no fear whatsoever. I was kind of surprised by that. But I had no fear. I had this resounding peace and assurance of my life, my eternal life in Jesus Christ. And I tell you, there is no more incredible peace than that. When you feel like it could be your last day or last moment, that you know it doesn't matter, you have Christ, you have this gift of eternal life, and that is so much more valuable than anything this world offers us. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. What a beautiful promise. Now Isaiah, this last bit here, says, he came to release us from darkness. As Tim spoke last week about Jesus being the light of the world, I'll just touch on this briefly, but in the light of Christ, darkness flees and is conquered. He delivers us not just from our sin, but the forces of spiritual darkness that come against us in this world. And what a beautiful promise to hold on to in Christ. So when the Messiah shows up in the flesh, as Tim said, you know, where Isaiah begins, where Isaiah ends, Jesus begins. So when the Messiah shows up, Jesus comes preaching good news to the poor and afflicted.
accepted. He preaches forgiveness for our sins, reconciliation with God and hope in eternal life. Jesus binds up the brokenhearted. His love restores dignity to people, especially the outcasts. He heals the deepest places of our hearts and inner wounds. And you know what? I love prayer ministry here so much in my life because I never get tired of Jesus moving in people's heart, touching people's lives. We get to see that here every week. What a privilege and a blessing. Jesus brings freedom for the captives, freedom from this curse of sin once and for all, freedom from death for all who long to receive it. And he delivers us from darkness. As John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, that's like five, six, one, I'm done. <laughs> no, 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 there's a bit more, there's a bit more. All right, because he's got another line there. I haven't got there yet. But I just want to say, with all of that, <laughs> this is what happens when Jesus arrives in the room. This is what unfolds when Jesus shows up. This prophecy in Isaiah comes to life and is unleashed through the life of Christ. And if there's anything you do this week, maybe meditate on this passage. It is actually so profound. And there's so many promises of us for us to hold on to there. But he goes on. He gives us one more line. He makes a proclamation. The year of the Lord's favour, or also referred to as the year of Jubilee. And I just want to unpack this for a minute, because what was the year of Jubilee? Well, I'm so glad you asked, so let me tell you. <laughs> the year of Jubilee, designed by God, came every 50 years, so it was on the 50th year. And it was a year of releasing people from their debts, it was releasing all slaves, it was returning property to those who owned it. You can read about it in Leviticus 25. But this year was also a year dedicated to rest, resting the land and acknowledging God would provide the needs for his people. Imagine if we experienced a real jubilee today, a massive global reset. I wonder if we'd be happy about that or not. I think, how would you feel about that? It's a massive global reset, the economy reset. Jubilee did that, it basically reset the economy. It nourished the land and the environment and ironed out all the iniquity for the poor. They were given a reset every generation. And I can't wonder but how that must have made, you know, especially the poor feel valued and, and important in society. Jubilee also stopped work from becoming an idol in people's hearts. It caused people to acknowledge that all they had belonged to the Lord and we were simply stewards of it. It's amazing. Like, read more about it. It's so cool. So when Jesus announces, this is the year of the Lord's favour, this is the year of Jubilee, he's actually saying so much more. What greater provision is there than that which is fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ? You see, Jesus himself is the fulfilment of Jubilee. Mary Blair puts it like this. When Jesus says, today this scripture is being fulfilled, He's saying not just every 50 years, not just every seventh year, but every now, every today. And I think I have this next quote by Melody up there. Oh, there is beautiful. Which says, the essence of Jubilee is God's inspired vision to interrupt the status quo, a reset embedded in the way of life for God's redeemed and liberated people, emphasizing the relationships between humanity, creation, and God. I love that. Jesus showed up and interrupted the status quo. 
in a most profound way. It was the greatest reset of all time. And though and through it, we are to be reminded of our liberation spiritually, once and for all, by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's incredible. So in Luke chapter 4, we're going to fast forward now, I think I've got a slide up there for this, but Luke chapter 4 is the moment <laughs> where Jesus quotes. So let's shift gears and we're going to dive into this story for a moment. Jesus begins his public ministry by quoting this passage. He's just returned, I want to touch on this, from the temptation in the wilderness. So chapter 4 actually begins with Jesus um, full, it says he's full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and there he's tempted by Satan but overcomes every temptation. And the thing I love about this story is as he returns in verse 14, it says Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news spread about him, you know, teaching and preaching in the synagogues. I just want to note, he went into the wilderness full of the Spirit. He overcame temptation and returned empowered by the Spirit. As we overcome spiritual challenges in this life, there is an authority that is revealed. And empowering that becomes evident in the overcoming. And as we as believers in that, have that same privilege of being filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can experience that same revelation of that empowerment as we overcome the things that we face. Amen? So Jesus arrives in Nazareth, where he was brought up, so they know him well. He's like, hey town. He enters the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read, as rabbis did at that time, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens up this scroll, and he finds this passage, and he reads it out loud, just to where we've unpacked it before. He stops there. He stops at a really significant part of the passage. Why doesn't he read the whole passage? But he stops there. And in doing so, here, Jesus is calling. <laughs> Jesus divides history in half. The messianic expectation by the Jews was that God would do it all at once. They were kind of expecting a Messiah to show up who would do the whole thing all at once. But Jesus purposely stops reading at the year of Jubilee. And can I just say the message puts this verse so beautifully. It says, God sent me to announce the year of his grace. The year of his grace. Are we not living in a time of unprecedented grace poured out by God? Do not let it pass you by. Do not let this time of grace pass you by. Jesus hands Isaiah the scroll back to the attendant. The scriptures say everyone's eyes were fixed on him. I just imagine that moment. And then he sits down as they would, and then that's when they would start teaching. But Jesus says this. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine that moment. Today this has been fulfilled, fulfilled in your hearing. What would you have done? How would you have reacted when Jesus, the Messiah, shows up and reveals himself in the room? He is saying, I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah who you've been waiting for. Amazingly though, just 29, a few verses down, the Jews are trying to throw Jesus off a cliff. Why? 
Why is what Jesus says so offensive? You know, at this time, we always want to look in context. Historically, the Jews were very nationalistic. And they had this idea that the Messiah was on their side alone. That he would conquer Rome for them and make them a victorious nation. And that's how they were expecting things to go down. We can have expectations that sometimes get met in an entirely different way by God. Jesus says in this passage after reading Isaiah some things that went on to upset them. And I didn't really understand this, so I kind of had to dig into it a bit. But he basically tells them a prophet isn't welcome in his own town. But he's saying, you haven't welcomed me here. You haven't welcomed me in my hometown as a prophet that I am. And I bet that was probably a little bit offensive. Jesus tells two stories from the history. One of Elijah being sent to a widow. But the reason the story is offensive is because the widow wasn't a Jew. Even though there were so many Jews, Elijah was sent to a widow that wasn't one. And Elisha was sent to cleanse a leper, Naman, who again wasn't Jewish but was a Syrian. He tells these stories to them. You see, they believe salvation was only for the Jews. And they get a little upset with Jesus bringing up these stories in a moment in connection with this passage. And so they try to throw him off a cliff. And I have many Jewish friends, I love the Jewish people, so this is just the story. <laughs> don't look, you don't like it. But they're about to throw him off a cliff, and I think this is so cool. It just says that Jesus seems to pass right through them, like he's invisible. The Bible has some wild stuff in it. So later on, in Luke's Gospel, John the Baptist began having questions too concerning Jesus. There were lots of questions about him. What are your questions about him? You know, John had been in prison for a while, Herod was still sitting on the throne and hadn't been kicked off, and he's sitting in prison, and he sends his disciples to Jesus with a question, are you the Messiah, or shall we look for another? Now, I'm a drama teacher, and we're all about emphasis. So I just wonder, how was this actually said? Was it said more like this? Are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for another? Like, what was the emphasis on this line? What was John trying to, you know, say and seek? Jesus was showing up in a way people didn't fully expect. And he still does that today. He did not come to overthrow the Roman government but to free the people from what truly and eternally impacts us, which is sin. That is why he came. He did not come to rewrite the laws of men, but have, by the Spirit, the law of God imprinted on our hearts as believers. It is the revolution from within that goes on to change everything else in this world. He came, church, for your hearts. He came not to sit upon a political throne, he came to be enthroned upon your hearts and to have eternal communion with you. I was going to say that again. He came for your hearts. He didn't come to sit upon a political throne. He came to be enthroned upon our hearts. To have eternal communion with us. That's what he wants most. That's what Jesus wants most. So in that same hour, when John sent this question to Jesus, Many, it says, came to Jesus in that very hour who were blind and lame, afflicted by demons. This is the work of Christ. And he healed them. He restored their sight. He set them free. And he said to those disciples of John, go back and tell John what you have seen. How the blind receive their sight. The lame are walking. Lepers are cleansed. And to the poor, 
the gospel is being preached. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's what he was about. His works testified of who he is. And may the church be a continuing testimony in this hour of these works of Christ. Amen? Wouldn't that be amazing? Isn't it amazing? This is what happens when Jesus shows up in the room. Now I said a moment ago that Jesus was dividing history in half. Where he stopped reading was significant. The second part of the prophecy in Isaiah denotes the second coming of Christ where there will be a final judgment of mankind, that day of vengeance of the Lord, it says. But it also says we do experience, or as we read this, we can relate, we do experience a taste of some of these good things now in our current era, as the kingdom of God breaks in. From verse 2, it says, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And do we not in this life still experience sorrows, but we also get to experience the comfort of the ministry of the Holy Spirit? You know, I don't know, you've probably never tried this because it's stupid, but I was going to say, has anyone ever tried putting ashes back together? But that would be ridiculous because we can't reconstruct them. But yet, you know, our dreams, our ambitions, our hopes, can sometimes turn to ashes, can they not? Yet God can turn ashes into beauty. He is the only one who can turn ashes into beauty. We can have experiences of the joy of the Lord. Often, I don't know if you've been lucky enough to see this, but often when my husband gets really overcome by the Holy Spirit, he goes into like giggle fits and like laughs really loudly. It's really funny. But um, so those of you who were at one of the John Peters nights, remember him on the carpet here up the front just doubled over, laughing with joy in the presence of God. The scriptures say, in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. The total fulfillment though, the total completion, the total fulfillment of God wiping away every tear, of no more pain, no more disease or sickness or death, will be completed at the dawning of the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal age to come. When Jesus shows up for the second time on earth, there will be a final judgment, but also a glorious new beginning. If you are in the room, how are we going to respond? And on that note, I want to close today by touching on the end of Isaiah 61, which is verse 11. I think I'm going to say, yes. Essie jumped on slides this morning because we didn't have anyone, and you are nailing it. She was really nervous, but you were doing amazing. Thank you. Thank you. If anyone loves slides and wants to offer them services, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> okay, verse 11 says, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. These two aspects of righteousness and praise I want to close with. And I believe these will be an aspect of what we see in end time revivals. You know, a revival is an unprecedented outpouring of the Spirit of God where heaven and earth collide. What does righteousness look like that in the midst of revival on earth? Righteousness can look like waves of repentance breaking out, which is so beautiful. It can look like a hunger and an increase in a value for holiness in our lives. 
a desire to be cleansed by the Word of God and realigned with its truth. Um, just quickly, often in revivals we see these incredible revelations of God that come about. Um, salvation by grace, not works, Martin Luther in the 16th century, Azusa Street Revival, I feel we got this great, amazing revelation of the person of the Holy Spirit. In the 94 revival I heard in Toronto, there was incredible awakening of the Father heart of God. And what I believe could be coming next is a greater revelation of the Son, Jesus Christ, in all His glory, and worship unto Him on earth like we have never seen before. So righteousness and praise. Israel's most prosperous time in history was David's 40-year reign, where there was non-stop, do you know they had non-stop praise, 24-7, around the clock, Katie's loving this, around the clock in Israel for 40, no, more than 40 years, but 40 years while David was king. And if you look at the history of that, it is Israel's most prosperous, peaceful time. They won every battle. They had the most extraordinary era while that was taking place. And David's last act as, as king was to increase the number of worshippers to 228, 12 for every hour of the day, just worshipping God, worshipping God. Praise and worship going forth unhindered for 80 continuous years in the end. And during that time, the Lord did for Israel what they could never accomplish in the natural. It's part of the reason we run regular worship nights. There's something about the Lord that delights in the sound of our praise. So may we pray for an awakening of greater moves of righteousness and praise within the church and the people of God. When Christ shows up again, may he see us hungering after holiness and praising him relentlessly. Amen. Let's stand. Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. Matthew 10, 7. Do you guys need to stand? And it says, the kingdom of heaven has come near, he says to them. Go, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Let's just take a moment right now. I think some of us today just need to be launched into going and doing the works of Christ. Doing the things we read about that he was about in Isaiah 61. Bringing freedom, bringing release from darkness. Healing hearts, healing lives by the power of the Spirit. But I also think some of us here today, and we might just want to take a moment to close your eyes. Maybe you want to hold out your hands to receive from the Lord right now. But some of us here today as well just need Jesus to show up in the room today. So before we sing, I'm going to ask him to just come.